Hello, and welcome back to P.S. Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and in today's episode, we'll be getting into more Witchy Tales Part 2. Alright, here we go. Alright, hopping into the witchy stories today, we're going to start at girlmuseum.org. We will be discussing themes such as religious persecution, devil worship, and physical and sexual violence. The time of witch hunts were terrifying and violent, and the acts that witches were accused of and subjected to are particularly disturbing. Alright, with that being said, let's hop into the article. It's called Little Witches, A History of Girls and Witchcraft in Early Modern Times. Witch hunts occurred over centuries, and some of the most infamous historical events in Europe and North America for hundreds of years, we've been captivated by the idea of female capable of magic. Perhaps surprisingly, girls figure prominently. They begin as victims, but morphed into accused witches. Why? What happened to turn young girls, sometimes very young girls, into being witches? Little Witches explores this question, looking specifically at witch hunts in history to find when girls were the center stage in the persecution of witches and why they still are today. Notice a few things. First, the code states that a, a witch is a man. There's no indication that women were witches. Second, the code makes a distinction whether a spell is justified, meaning that witchcraft was likely seen as both good and bad. Kind of like punishment. Did the person deserve a spell being cast on them? Why did one person cast a spell on another? Finally, it codifies a punishment that would later be repeated by Europeans. An accused witch would be put into a river, and whether he drowned or not indicated his innocence. This left, left judgment entirely up to chance, absolving any living person from guilt. If the witch was guilty, he died. If he was innocent, he lived through his accuser would be executed to make false testimony. In effect, the judicial system had no role other than to witness guilt or innocence. Another problem is that historically, witch hunts are a very Western European and European American event. Witches have existed in many times and in many forms, but only in Europe and America do we find sustained historical witch hunting. While the practice later spread through colonization, it's important to remember that not all cultures condemn witches. For example, in Japan, witches are believed to have familiars, typically a fox, that grant them power through trickery or possession. In Korea, witches primarily rely on spells to influence others, while in Russia, a witch is more commonly called Baba Yaga, or Babka, and seen as older wise woman. It was only upon the invasion of Christianity in Africa and Asia that local beliefs, also known as folk beliefs, came to be associated with devil worship. Little Witches focuses on European and European-American witch hunts, as these sources are readily available to our team at the time of our writing. We also look at how European witch hunts spread through colonization and into the modern world, profoundly changing folk beliefs into instruments of subjugation, finding girl witches. Beyond cultural affiliation, witch hunts are a difficult topic to study, especially when it comes to locating girls within the story. 
Notably, many witch hunts failed to record even basic biological or biographical information about accusers or accused. This reflected beliefs in women's inferiority, believing that only their name and marital status mattered in the court. Ages, place of residence, occupations, families, and personal religious beliefs often must be inferred from records or found through extensive genealogical and historical research. One of the biggest issues faced in studying girlhood is verifying the age of females that we study. Sometimes a specific age is recorded. Other time, it is referred to by stating that a woman was young, or married, or old. We have to try to determine what contemporaries meant by those terms, based on average ages of marriage and death. Finally, more often than not, there simply isn't enough information available on the females in question. Male writers didn't see the importance in writing down women's lives, or even basic information. They were writing for themselves and for their time not for those of us studying them hundreds of years later. To find girl age witches, which we define as under 21 years of age, we have to take things with a grain of salt. There are records of early witch hunts where girl children were, or probably were, involved. 323 BCE, Theoris of Lemnos, who lived in Athens with her children, worked as a folk healer in three surviving accounts, we know that someone accused Theoris of practicing magic and using her maidservant to traffic potions and incantations. Eventually, the maidservant informed authorities about Theoris's practices. Theoris was put on trial, convicted, and executed, along with her children. We don't know what crime was charged or why her children died with her. Magic was widely practiced in ancient Greece, but the use of potions or drugs to kill was criminal. It is possible that Theoris was making such drugs. 91 to 87 BCE, a five-year-long witch hunt in China reshuffled political power and led to Confucianism becoming the dominant way of life. In 91 BCE, Emperor Wu had been ill for a long time. Thinking it the work of witches, Zheng Chong convinced the emperor to excavate imperial parks and palaces, searching for effigy dolls used to perform black magic, and thus caused his disease. Anyone accused of using the dolls was arrested, and tens of thousands were put to death, including the crown prince and ultimately Chong himself. The hunt murdered entire ruling families, leaving a power vacuum later filled by Confucians. Because entire families were involved, it is highly likely that young girls were accused of being witches and executed. 1429 CE In Korea, Crown Princess Hui of the Indong Kim clan was accused of using witchcraft to gain her husband's love. Princess Hui cut her rival's shoes into pieces and burned them to ash, as well as drain the fluids from a snake and rub them on a cloth she wore. When her husband, the king, realized this, Hui was confined and questioned and then banished from the royal family and court life. Hui's maid, Ho Cho, was executed for teaching Hui witchcraft. Princess Hui was believed to be 19 years old at the time of her banishment. The Rise of Modern Witches until the late 1400s, witches seemed to be regional folk belief and community issue, not a widespread religious or social issue. 
What changed? First, the Renaissance renewed an interest in magic, especially the kind espoused in writings of Arabic, Jewish, Romani, and Egyptian sources that were rediscovered by Europeans in the 1400s. Texts include descriptions of what we now call demonology or black magic, divination, and palm reading. Seen as exotic, many people were interested in learning about these arts or seeing them practiced, especially as answers to things that could not be explained by science. But the Catholic Church expressly forbade such magical arts. What distinguished these new arts was twofold. First, it was learned magic, and second, it was exotic magic. During the medieval period, magic was seen to come from the Fae, magical or semi-magical beings that inhabited the world around them, naturally occurring and local to the region. Magic was more of a gift or gifted ability that someone possessed, redefined or refined through practice and learning, but ultimately dependent on someone's innate abilities. During the Renaissance, magic became something that anyone could be taught. In response to popularity of magic, the church fought back. Oddly, the fight included church engaging in magical arts, specifically demonology, in order to develop academic-based practices and finding and neutralizing witches. Interestingly, the church remained rather lenient. Punishments typically consisted of a day in the stocks, never death. The church saw witchcraft as a superstition, a pre-Christian belief that needed to be corrected, or mere illusion. Though witchcraft practitioners could be accused of heresy, it was in the context that they were not fully worshipping God as they should, not because they were casting spells. That changed from the 1430s to 1480s, when at least 15 books about witches were published. One was Nicholas Jacur Flagellum Hatoricum Fessinorium, written in 1458 which defined witchcraft as a form of heresy and argued that the witch sect was, in essence, a type of organized religious crime. This idea of an organized group of witches committed he committing heresy was furthered in 19 er, 1486 with Malleus Malficarum, the most widely distributed manuscript to specifically make witchcraft a criminal, heretical act and offer guidelines for witch hunting. It was written by Heinrich Kramer, and this is important. Two years prior, Kramer had tried to prosecute witches in Tyrol, the, Ip the Alpine region of what is now Italy. It did not work. The locals hated Kramer and was even expelled from the city as senile and crazy. Kramer possibly wrote the book in revenge, hoping his ideas would take root. Notably, Kramer asserted that the children of witches were also witches because they had likely been initiated by their parents. But the church actually rebuked the book, with the Inquisition and the Faculty of Cologne saying the book's recommendation were unethical, illegal, and inconsistent with church doctrine. Unfortunately for girls and women, the book became popular among secular, non-church courts. Following the Malleus Maleficarum, secular judges and the people they presided over became obsessed with finding and brutally prosecuting witches. Techniques and familiar spirits, the way other parents passed on agricultural skills and livestock. Witch children dutifully obeyed their parents and followed their instruction. Witchcraft, therefore, could spread through communities and across generations by means of behavior that were viewed as godly in other contexts. 
the ideological state for witch hunts was set. But what triggered such mass hysteria and accusations? As sociologist Nachman bin Yehuda wrote in 1980, many social changes contributed to the wider public believing what has already been written. As the medieval world became more of a modern one, many changes occurred in Europe. The growth of cities and industrial production led to larger populations. Expansion of commerce and integration of new lands like the Americas into the European world. The environment was also changing. These changes were rapid and included lingering memory of the Black Death and similar plagues, which is estimated to have killed at least 50% of Europe's population. Rise of Protestantism in contacts with previously unknown non-Christian peoples. A distinct middle class, particularly in new urban centers. Disease epidemic of plagues and cholera. Little Ice Age, rapidly cooling of North Atlantic region temperatures from 1400 to 1850, resulting in much colder winters, freezing of major waterways, and failure of crops. And the Great Comet of 1528, taken to be an omen of some kind. Despite science's attempt to explain all of these changes, many people thought witches were to blame. It was easier to find a reason based in folk beliefs and entirely absent of personal responsibility than to wait for science to figure it out. Ben Yehuda explains, What could better explain the strain felt by the individual than the idea that he was part of a cataclysmic cosmic struggle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness? His personal acceptance of this particular explanation was further guaranteed by the fact he could assist the sons of light in helping trap the sons of darkness, and thus play a real role in ending the cosmic struggle. By the mid-1500s, a witch hunt craze had consumed Europe, initially focused on adults, particularly women. The latter half of the craze saw the appearance of child witches. So how did children, especially young girls, come to be called witches? Navarra, 1525-40 to 40. Girls, 9-year-old girl, name unknown. 11-year-old girl, name unknown. Causes, overzealous magistrate Pedro de Belanza, Thrill of witch hunting, Spanish Inquisition, and religious zealotry. Results? 1525, 200 trials and 50 executions were held without official judges being present. 1540, 50 witches accused, tried, and given penances, 30 of whom were between the ages of 10 and 14. Trier, 1587-1593. Causes? Zealous archbishop who wanted to demonstrate the strength of the Jesuit faith. Bishop Peter Bensfield's book asserted that children should be subjected to the same procedures as adults, and that the child witches were extremely dangerous and invariably incapable of reform. Result? Children were tortured to gain confessions, which were then used to, in the court against them. At least 368 were executed. Basque, 1609, over 7,000 accused, most of whom were children, one of which was named Maria de Zemil de Gui. Causes? Witch persecution in neighboring regions of France, migration to find work, an edict of faith charging every citizen to meet the Spanish Inquisition and report on suspicious acts under threat of excommunication. Result? Two disease epidemics that killed more 
or that killed those imprisoned on charges of witchcraft, eleven sentenced to execution, five of whom died in epidemics, and six burned at the stake. Alright, Pendle, 1612. Causes. King James I, whose fear of witches created widespread paranoia, and whose publications advocating many witch-hunting techniques, mistaking medical emergency for witchcraft, device family skips Sunday service once. Results, children are allowed to be called as witnesses in court. Subsequent publications by court clerks elevate Pendle to status of case study of other witch hunts. We're going to take a quick break and then get right back into the articles. Alright, now we go over to, of course, social media, where there's been many people that have posted stories about encountering witches, or just have really creepy experiences that they somehow attribute to witches. So let's read some of those. Alright, this poster writes, Okay, so I live in a very old home in Grouse Point, Michigan. Definitely felt, have felt and experienced weird energy here, but for the last week, my three-year-old has been saying there's a yellow monster in her room at night, and then tonight she tells my mom that the yellow witch hurts her fingers at night, and her fingers have been peeling. I've taken her to the doctor for it, but they just said she has dry skin. On her baby camera, I've seen orbs floating around before and pretty often, but I also see them on multiple different cameras in my house. We don't have any air ducts, so I don't think it's dust floating around. I'm fine with the thought of spirits existing where I live, especially since I'm in a very old home. But should I be worried about a yellow witch? Has anybody else have any ideas of what a yellow witch may be? I've tried to search it, but found nothing. Alright, very cool story. Yeah, kids, I'm telling you, <laughs> kids are close to that uh, veil, I guess. Like, I don't know, but they say some pretty spooky things sometimes. <laughs> I know whenever I would uh, babysit for one of our families in our church back in the day, uh, this one girl would point in her mirror and point towards the closet that would be open and dark. And she would say, the man, the man is standing there again. And I'd be like, be quiet. Get, go sit down. <laughs> like, I was like trying to keep my cool as a teenager. Like, I need this money. Just go watch TV. <laughs> All right, let's get into some more stories. All right, so this poster writes, so my mother was a witch, if you believe in that kind of thing. We had a very toxic relationship. Well, this is a story from when she died. My mother had passed away in 2018 from cancer in the hospital. And we went home and we picked up my daughter. And she spent a lot of time in my mom's room with my mother. Well, she was talking to someone in the bedroom. And we asked her who she was talking to. And she said them. We asked her who they were. And she said they told me to talk to him. And we were concerned. Well, fast forward to the day of her funeral. We get home and we're hanging out with my family, and my daughter, out of nowhere, says the ghosts are coming. About four days after the funeral, my son's toys would start randomly going off. 
Shortly after we moved from my mother's, well, about two years ago, I swear on my life I saw my mother standing in the living room. Ever since then, I hear things move in the night. Even during the day, I feel like I'm being looked at. I can't stand it. Even if it is my mother, she knew I didn't like the paranormal in life or messing with me. I have a necklace with her ashes, and I'm assuming that is why she's still here. But I'm wondering, how would I get her unattached from it? Alright. Very cool. Alright. Here is another one. This one's a little bit longer. Alright, this poster writes, Backstory. About three years ago, I took two of my children up to Tennessee to visit my baby sister. My youngest son and oldest daughter. My oldest daughter is about a quarter or so Latina. She is my bonus baby. I am nearly entirely Eastern European, genetically, with about 2.7% Filipino from somewhere. I have a bit of knowledge about a lot of things, enough to know I do not know enough. I say this simply to illustrate that most of what I know of ancient spirits is based out of that collection of knowledge, and I believe this to be beyond what I am familiar with. At the time my daughter was 13, turning 14 in the fall, my sister's house is very old, at least the foundation is, and the land where she lives is in the Appalachian. Very old forest, very old, ancient powers in the land, in the rocks all around. A very energetically charged area. My daughter is very sensitive to these energies. She has sight to see entities. Sometimes she has prophetic dreams. I do not discourage her from sharing her experiences with me, and I always believe what she or any of my children tell me when they have these types of experiences. One evening, my younger brother and I had gone outside to smoke, and because I had a very uneasy feeling that night, I was also anointing the house with Palo Santo. My son was asleep, he was about three at the time, and my daughter was sitting on the couch watching a cartoon. This is where I am a little lost. What she described to me was as follows. Sitting on the couch, looking at the TV, she can see into the next room where my son was sleeping. He was in the front room, just inside the front door, on an army cot. As she was looking into the darkened room, she saw, in her words, It was very tall, almost like it really shouldn't have been able to fit in the room. It was standing upright on two legs, but they were animal legs, like a goat or a deer. It was very long-limbed. Its arms reached way down to past its knees, and its hands were long and thin with nasty-looking claws. It was very bony, but also very solid looking. It had a human looking torso, but was covered in long hair that looked matted and hung in clumps. She said it had no face. Oh my gosh, that's freaky. For a head was an animal skull with massive antlers, and where its eyes should have been was instead a soft, smoky, purple, misty sort of light set back in the eye sockets. She said it stood over my sleeping son, just looking down at him, not moving, not really doing anything, just looking. She took a breath because she realized she had been holding her breath. And when she did, it turned to look at her, 
She didn't move a muscle, just stared back. Then, because she thought maybe it was a trick of the light, she shifted slightly to the right. The thing never looked away from her, but tilted its head to the side, like a puppy when you make a loud squeak. Almost in a confused way, she said that at that moment she heard me and her uncle coming back up on the porch. The thing looked over to the porch where we were coming, turned, and walked out of the living room. Like, there was just no wall or anything. Just turned, began to walk, and was gone. So now, I know what that sounds like to me, physical description-wise, but behavior does not line up with what I think I know about this particular entity. Again, most of my spiritual entity knowledge is based on European lore. I haven't spent much thought on experience since then. Occasionally, I remember and only have questions. However, more and more lately, I find thoughts of this encounter rattling around my mind. I do not bring it up to her. I do not want her to be afraid. We are all going back to spend a week there this summer. And while I am not fearful, I do feel like I don't have enough knowledge about this to feel prepared. For clarity's sake, she doesn't know what what it seems she is describing is, and I did not tell her that could be what she saw. I told her it was probably just an ancient forest spirit. Again, because I do not want to frighten her, but I'm not 100% sure that's what it is. Because of that behavior does not match my understanding of the nature of that particular creature. So the question is, what did my kid see? What do you think it could have been? And what knowledge can you share? I'm assuming she thinks this is a skinwalker, <laughs> a flesh pedestrian, if you will, um, which are, you know, come from like Native American lore, like Navajo, um, where like a witch, you know, has to do a terrible deed, like kill a family member or something like that in exchange for the ability to, you know, shapeshift and turn themselves into whatever animal that they desire kind of thing. But the Navajo always warn that you're not supposed to talk about such things lest you bring one upon yourself, so... I'll leave that there. Alright, did you know that there's a witch house in Salem, Massachusetts? If you're someone that loves history, you can't miss putting the witch house in Salem, Massachusetts on your bucket list. Even though Salem is famous for the Salem witch trials, this town's direct ties to that period of time are somewhat scarce today. But the witch house in Salem is a building that has direct ties to the Salem witch trials, something that no other building still standing can claim. This house was home to Jonathan Corwin, the judge that was presiding over Salem during the witch trials. Because this house saw such a dark period in history, it's no surprise many visitors claim that it's haunted today. Alright, here's another post. Not my story, but found on the web. This particular folklore is considered widespread to many countries around the world, touching nearly every continent. Most commonly known as a witch, this entity takes on many different forms according to the legend's origin country. At its most basic, the will-o'-wisp is an atmospheric ghost light 
as seen at night. Curious ones who follow the flickering light can be pulled away from safer paths as the light recedes. The strange apparition or creatures is said to be fairies or ghost candles seen floating in graveyards. In Asia, the lights target and confuse fishermen, leading them to drown, their souls joining the lights over bogs and wetlands. In Europe, the lights are believed to be spirits of the dead and stemming from Christian origins, including souls lost between heaven and hell. In North America, the lights transform into brujas, or witches. There have been many attempts of scientific explanation to the strange orbs. However, interest in such exploration has declined as the draining and reclamation of swamplands in recent centuries have taken away the environment in which the orbs were mainly spotted. Very cool. We talked about the lights in Appalachia as well in previous episodes. There's a little meme going around um, I found interesting. It's about the word abracadabra. Did you know that the difference between abracadabra and avada kedavra? I guess that's from Harry Potter. (laughs) Like the death curse. Abracadabra means, I will create when I speak. And Avada Kedavra means, I will destroy as I speak. Oh, wow. So that makes sense why they used it in the books and movie. The words come from ancient Aramaic and were said to be used by witches and spell work. Abracadabra is a powerful spell. If you write this downwards, you would get rid of evil and write upwards for good luck. People of the ancient world wore it as an amulet. I know that was the thing that all the kids would say back in the days. Like, anytime we were doing magic, it was abracadabra. (laughs) Who taught us this? I don't know. Alright. Here's a story, again, from social media. Um, It looks like it's from a group called G Nightmares. And it's called Trapped in the Witch's Lair. Again, this being from social media, I don't know if this is true or just a fabricated work of fiction, but either way, I think it'll be interesting for this episode. Alright, let's jump in. The night air was still and quiet as two robbers made their way through the desolate streets. That makes me think it's a work of fiction. (laughs) They were on the hunt for their next target, hoping to score big and finally retired their life of crime. As they roamed around, they stumbled across an old lady's house tucked away in the corner of the street. Without a second thought, the robbers broke in, expecting to find treasures and riches, but what they found instead was far more sinister. They discovered a door to the basement, which was locked, covered in strange markings. As they forced it open, a putrid smell emanated from within. Descending the stairs, the robbers found themselves in a room filled with bones, dried-out carcasses, and jars of unidentifiable organs. There were markings on all of the walls, and a large cauldron in the center of the room. Suddenly, they heard creaking footsteps, and a croaky voice said, You have entered my domain. You are not welcome here. As they turned around, they saw the old lady, grinning at them from the shadows. She was thin and tall with sunken eyes, and her skin was ashen and wrinkled. 
The robbers tried to make their escape, but it was too late. The old lady had powers that they could not comprehend. She summoned her dark forces, and the robbers were trapped inside the basement forever. They screamed, but their voices were drowned out by the old lady's cackles. Days turned into weeks, and finally the old lady revealed her true form, that of an evil witch. She waved her hands, and the bones of her victims crumbled into dust. She looked at the robbers with hunger in her eyes and said, Welcome to your new life. You will serve me well. The robbers were never seen again. The old lady's house remained vacant, and nobody ventured near it after that fateful night. The robbers' family searched for them, but they were never found. They became another set of bones in the old lady's cursed basement. And with each passing year, the witch grew stronger, feeding off the life essence of her victims, waiting for the next prey to enter her domain. Classic Wicked Witch story. <laughs> Alright, let's see. Came across some witchy explanations. This one is about cleansing and interpretation, a guide to spiritual cleansing and symbolism. In recent years, a practice called egg cleansing ritual has gained popularity in online witchcraft community. One might think this is a new modern practice, but in reality, the egg cleanse dates back centuries and its origins are spread out across cultures. Eggs are a powerful tool in any witch's or magical practitioner's repertoire. Here I will teach you why eggs are a potent ingredient in removing negative energy, plus how to do an egg cleansing ritual and how to read the egg afterwards. First, why are egg cleansings a thing? I'm one that believes certain practices of our ancestors are passed down over generations and certain practices are just ingrained in our DNA and spiritual memory. Either way, we'll have our ancestors to thank for this powerful ritual. One such ritual is called the egg cleanse. We all know how important it is to cleanse yourself and your space regularly, but why is an egg used as a purifying tool? Egg magic and umancy? I don't know if I'm saying that right. First, we have to look at the magic of the egg itself. Typically, we say eggs. We're most likely referring to a chicken egg. But there are eggs from other animals that can be used in magic and cleansing rituals. However, we recommend sticking to the chicken variety. And here's why. The chicken in and of itself has a God-given ability to keep evil at bay. Many cultures and traditions believe chickens scratch away evil spirits and scare any that are near. So yes, it is good luck and a great natural warding device to have chickens in your yard or on your property. Now eggs. They equal protection. That being said, eggs by default are also protective. But think of their actual physical makeup. The egg yolk, the whites, are contained in a hard protective shell. Egg magic is both protective and can be used to increase fertility. Eggs also have a long history of being used in folk magic from various traditions including African, Diasporic, Mesoamerican, Romani, German folk magic, powwow, and were even used by the ancient Greeks, Romans, and Celtic Druids. 
Now, Umancy. O-Eggs. Umancy is a form of ancient divination in which the individual reads eggs as messages from the gods. There were various ways of doing this, including cracking an egg into water and reading the pattern of white and the yolk. Some people read the lines, cracks, and color of the eggshells. I know today we have a mass-produced chicken eggs that are almost purely white color. Back in the day, on free-ranging farms, egg took on all different colors, shapes, and some were even speckled. Speaking of eggshells, when you're done reading them, you can use them as flying vehicles. Witches in medieval times were said to fly around in empty eggshells, as were fairies. Most people discarded their eggshells quickly as to not encourage mischievous magic makers from taking them. So how to do an egg cleansing ritual? What you'll need. One egg and have a backup in case you drop or crack the egg. A candle and a glass filled halfway with clean water. How to do an egg cleansing on yourself or another person. Begin by cleansing the egg of any negativity it might have picked up before reaching you. I like to carefully run the egg over a candle flame, not through it, but over it. I don't want to cook the egg, just let the fire touch it to cleanse it of the negative vibes. Next, start at the top of the head and gently roll the egg in a counterclockwise circles around the crown of the head. If you can close your eyes and focus on your intention, do so throughout the process. It's like imagine the negative energy is being picked up by the egg, sort of like an egg is a little vacuum. If you do this for someone else, have them close their eyes and explain to them what to visualize. Then moving the egg down the back of the head with your egg and then around to the face. Move down the neck, over the left arm, down to the fingers, then the right arm down to the fingers. Continue in circles. Follow with the chest, stomach, hips, buttocks, thighs, all the way down to the legs. Don't forget to rub the egg over the soles of your feet. This is an important step some folks forget. For the next step, you can do one of two things. A. Crack the egg over the cup of water and read the yolk and white patterns. Or B. Place the egg under your or the person's bed or on the altar for 24 hours. Then crack it and read it after. Alright, after you're done reading the egg yolk and the whites, get rid of the contents immediately. So, reading egg cleanse meanings. Once you've rubbed the egg all over your body, the next step in the egg cleanse process is to read the egg yolk and whites and the patterns therein like so. Crack your egg over the clear glass half filled with water. Let the yolk and whites settle. Then gaze through the glass from the side. You'll begin to see shapes, patterns, strings, colors, and more. Here's how to interpret different meanings behind your egg cleanse. Patterns, symbols, and colors in your egg cleanse cup. Clear or mostly clear means you've been keeping up with your cleansing methods and wards. It means you don't have a lot of negative energy affecting you. Strings of white that go from top to bottom in the water indicate energetic cords that are negative and need to be cleared. Blood in the yolk could mean one of two things, or both simultaneously. The person is ill, or is being spiritually attacked by a witch or the evil eye.
cloudiness in the whites and around the yoke is actually negative energy you've lifted off of yourself or the individual. Foul odor also means the person is being spiritually attacked or affected by witchcraft or the evil eye. Actual symbols should be read accordingly. For instance, if you see an eye, we interpret this egg cleansing as if someone is watching you or sending you the evil eye. If it's a scary face in the white, you may have a ghost or spirit nearby of a malevolent nature. Thick white blobs still connected to the yoke typically means the person has another person strongly attached to them and could be feeding off of their energy. Cobwebs or thready substance around the yoke means you have folks who are envious of you and your endeavors. Thick coating around the yoke could indicate strong protective shield around the person or the person is so defensive they struggle in relationships. Letters or numbers should also be read accordingly in the egg cleansing reading. Letters can indicate someone's initials who is throwing magic shade your way or someone who is attached to you energetically. Numbers could indicate the amount of people who are throwing shade your way, or it could be predicting a future event on a certain day. Double yoke means one of few things. A, if you're pregnant, you're having twins, or B, you're a twin soul somewhere out there. Or C, your soul may have been split in two during a traumatic experience during your life. You've read your egg cleansing meaning now what? Maybe you've read the meaning of your egg cleanse and reviewed certain results. What do you do with this information? First of all, if your egg showed mostly clear or somewhat cloudy, this is a good thing. It means you've cleansed yourself well enough already. But if you feel out of sorts still, cleanse yourself again by some other method. Bathing rituals, spoke cleansing, etc. If you notice you have attachments or cords, it's truly up to you to figure out who these people are, or spirits are, and whether you want to cut those cords or not. Remember, not all energetic cords are harmful. If there's blood or a bad smell, when there's blood in the egg, extreme cloudiness or a foul odor, that means someone is working magic against you, or that you have an evil spirit nearby. What do you do in this case? There's a few things you need to do. Cleanse your space and yourself, lay wards around your property, Call in your guides to protect you, and start wearing a protective amulet. In addition, some folks might consider a reversal spell, or a return to sender spell, as well as crafting or burying a witch bottle on the property. Cobwebs or double yokes. In addition to, if you find you have cobwebs in the egg or an eye, you have folks that are envious of you. Taking extra precaution to shield yourself from jealousy and the evil eye is necessary at this point. Wearing an evil eye amulet, I believe they're called a Nazar, or a Hagstone, is a powerful way to keep envious vibes at bay. As far as double yolks after an egg cleanse, this is typically interpreted in different ways depending on the person's situation. If pregnant, see it's out of the question, a double yolk could mean one's soul was split during a traumatic experience. If this is the case, a shaman would be the best paid the purpose. The person for soul retrieval. Alright, I know that was a little long, but pretty cool. Pretty cool article. Alright, another post 
says, I've intended to tackle the word witch in the guide sections to clear up the misunderstanding many people have. I intend to approach this with the history of this word. Exodus 22:18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. In 1611, the King James Bible was translated into English. The word translated from poisoner to witch was applied to the healers, the herbalists, and the wise women as a derogatory word. This was a time when the witch hunts were happening and many innocents suffered. Later practitioners began to adopt the term for themselves. Thou shalt not suffer a poisoner to live is not as catchy as thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, apparently. One user said, I was in OKC County Jail, and I met this guy in there that was charged with a double murder. He was accused of being a satanic priest, and the double murder was an affair gone wrong, which turned into a Satan or a satanic ritual double murder. But he proclaimed he was innocent. Well, there started to be some red flags popping up. The first one I noticed was all of his toenails were gone. I asked him about it, and he said he pulled them out with pliers. So then I said why he said he liked the pain. And then he said he was a Christian, but knew a lot of stuff about satanic things. Then somehow he could get out of his cell at night when everyone else was locked down. One night he said, I'll bet you we can pick someone up over our heads with one pinky. I didn't believe that, so I said, let's see. So there was five of us and one heavyset guy, close to 300 mark, in the middle. He had us walk around him several times chanting some gibberish. Then we walked around him chanting some gibberish the other way. And the next thing, the heavyset guy was being picked up by us with one pinky over our head. I couldn't believe it. I thought, man, maybe accusations might be true. It really was creepy. Alright. So I have a few things saved that I'm going to play. Um, not all of it is uh, necessarily um, witchy, but some of it is spooky nonetheless. All right, here we go. Okay, you see how they say that witches are lechusas, owls, or whatever? Yeah. And it's kind of also a symbol of bad luck. And you see an owl, especially in the, the daytime or whatever. And this was in a small town in Mexico that there was this lady they would call her La Lechusa, but she was a witch. She would perform a lot of like rituals and shit until eventually they caught her, so they decided to kill her. Right before they're about to kill her, she sees an owl flying on top of her, and she basically curses them and says that she will come back in the form of an owl and kill everybody and get revenge. So the legend is, is that in the middle of the night she would come. If you see an owl, that it's La Lechusa, and basically what she does is that she shapeshifts from an owl into a regular lady, a witch, and she kills you. I didn't know that it was bad luck if you see it in the daytime. I mean, there's different beliefs. A lot of people have different ways of seeing it like everything else. There's some people who say that it's a sign of good luck. If you see it, that means that there's big changes coming in your life. It also means like wisdom and knowledge and stuff like that. But from what I've heard is that it's basically like death is around. All right. That was from the Unnoticed podcast. Uh, episode 73, timestamp, an hour and 12 minutes if anybody wants to hear that full episode that they did. All right, let's see what else TikTok has to offer us. Oh, this is a good one. 
this is right here in my backyard in Louisville, Kentucky. Did you know that Louisville, Kentucky has a tree that belongs to witches? It's a standing testament to a famous local lore in the late 19th century. This tree is called the Witch's Tree. According to legend, this was a gathering place for a coven of witches who performed ceremonies and spells around this tree. Right across the street, the city planning committee decided to remove the tree ahead of an annual May Day celebration. This really pissed the witches off greatly, so they decided to cast a curse. Exactly 11 months of the day after the tree was cut down, the city suffered a horrific storm. Destroyed the entire city, but a lightning struck on the stump of the old witch's tree, and a new tree began growing in its place. This tree certainly looked different, and to many locals, they believe it was something otherworldly. On its knots and misshapen branches lie some trinkets and dolls as a gift from other witches who travel from near and far to pay respect to the witch's tree and the coven of witches that used to gather around it. According to another legend, if you steal a gift from this tree, you'll be walking away with a curse. That was from Haunted LA Girl. It does look like a bizarre tree, like the roots are outstretching and as you go up from the roots you have like knotted bark like it's almost like a tree that has tumors made of wood you know um it's definitely a unique looking tree that's for sure um but i always like kentucky stuff let's keep going this one's gonna talk a little bit about Samhain sure what kind of ritual to do for Samhain. Samhain is creeping up on us and a lot of you guys have been asking to see a video of a Samhain ritual. So what is the point of a Samhain? Well, that really depends on what you want to do it for. For example, as you may or may not know, Samhain is often celebrated by modern day witches as the Witches New Year. So for this example, think of how people set their New Year's resolutions, except ours is going to be sprinkled with a little bit of magic and manifestation. I'm using a medium-sized candle holder. The first thing you're going to add to your candle holder is dirt. Yep, you heard that right. Dirt. Dirt is such an underrated smell component, and for this example, we're using it for growth and transformation. You don't need a whole lot of it. A spoonful would be fine. I'm using this pumpkin tea light from the dollar store, but you can use the plain tea light as well. The pumpkin, for this example, represents abundance. Carve any symbols you want on the bottom of your candle. That is the pinnacle. It's just... Place it on top of your dirt. At this point, you're going to go ahead and write down your intentions on a piece of paper. Feel free to add any regular symbols, sayings, whatever you want on this piece of paper, as long as it relates to what you're doing. Set a bay leaf on top of your intention paper. Place your dominant hand on top of your bay leaf and spend a few minutes either saying your intentions out loud or thinking about your intentions. Go ahead and hold your paper towards you three times and keep your bay leaf inside. At this point, you can light your spell candle. For this next part, please use fire safety. You will need some tongs and a fire safe dish. You can now use your spell candle to light your intention paper on fire. Transfer it to a fire safe dish and let it burn all the way. When it's all finished burning, you're going to take these ashes and very carefully dump them on top of your spell candle. Let your candle burn all the way down if you can, but if you can't, feel free to put it out with a glass of water. And if you're thinking, won't that ruin my ritual? You're fine, but if you're super worried about it, before you transfer your ashes onto the spell candle, take a little sprinkle of those ashes and put it in your emergency glass of water. After this burns all the way down, you can discard any leftover wax, and then I personally would keep the dirt in a jar and keep it on my altar, but that's totally up to you. That was from Simple Path Witchery, and I guess it's not my intention to like show you how to do spells, but I do want to point out that in 
all of these, it has to do with intention and visualizing your outcome or visualizing what you want. And in that way, just like I said in the other episode, it's like a prayer or a manifestation or, you know, it's like it's a hope, but it's like you're actively trying to like use your intention and your will to like shape your outcomes. Like, for example, with Samhain, it's like the witch's new year. And what do we do at new year? We set our intentions for the coming year. So I think it's really cool that, you know, on Samhain, they kind of focus on intention and what they want to see come about, you know? I do have another video on Samhain, but it's like how it relates to Halloween. Why do we decorate with black and orange on Halloween? In order to understand why black and orange became the colors of Halloween, once again need to look back to Halloween's Celtic progenitor, Samhain. Let's tackle black first. Turns out black wasn't associated with Samhain because it's the color of spookiness, but because it's the color of death and mourning. And what is Samhain if not a celebration of death? The festival is centered around the dead who have passed on to the Celtic underworld, but who might make an appearance on the evening of October 31st, as well as the figurative death of the sun as winter approaches. As Whiskey Stevens, author of the book Rise of the Witch, told Reader's Digest, quote, Black is a representation of the dark months that come with winter, end quote. So what about orange? It's gotta be the pumpkins, right? Making jack-o'-lanterns, after all, has been a Samhain tradition for centuries. But remember, Celtic peoples originally used root vegetables for making jack-o'-lanterns. Pumpkin carving came later, and by then, orange had already been well-established as a color of Halloween. What gives? Here's a clue. Go rub two sticks together. While the term Samhain is used primarily to describe the frightening and fire-filled pastoral festival as it was celebrated in pre-Christian Ireland, the roots of said festival potentially date back not only to much earlier, but also back to the European continent. According to researcher Joseph Monar, archaeological evidence, including the Caligny calendar, which was dated in the 2nd century CE, suggests that the Celts of ancient Gaul celebrated their new year at the end of summer. Indeed, the first month of the Gaulish new year was called Samonius in the Gallic language, derived from the root Samo, meaning summer, leading some scholars to believe that the Irish Samhain is rooted in the same tradition. It's also telling that just about every region settled by, or at least heavily influenced by, the Celts would come to celebrate a version of what appears to be the same holiday on October 31st slash November 1st. Starting with the Goidelic or Gaelic-speaking Celtic countries, we of course have Samhain in Ireland, but also Savin in Scotland and Hoptu Na in the Isle of Man, though the proper Manx term for the festival is Mead Honey, which may come. Well, the terms the festival is famous, infamous for its associations with death and evil and fire, and according to author and librarian Ruth Edmund Kelly's The Book of Halloween, said associations have everything to do with changing of the seasons, and more specifically, the suffering of the sun. And I quote, On November 1st was Samhain, summer's end. The year was over, and the sun's life of a year was done. The Celts thought that at this time, the sun fell victim for six months to the powers of winter darkness. From the idea that the sun suffered from his enemies on this day grew the association of Samhain with death. End quote. Author Clement A. Miles reiterates Kelly's summer's end etymology of Samhain in his book, Christmas in Ritual and Tradition, Christian and Pagan, while also offering an alternative, assembly. If accurate, the assembly interpretation may harken back to Samhain's origins as a harvest or pastoral festival. Rather than being a morbid affair, perhaps those first Samhains were about people coming together and sharing their recently harvested crops and celebrating the return of their livestock which would have just completed. The festival of Spain is clad in white. Interestingly, the walk is clad in the festival. Well, a month
belongs to the Brythonic or Britonic speaking Celtic countries, the October 31st slash November 1st festival is referred to not as summer's end, but as the Calends of winter. Calends being a fancy word for the first day of. Thus, in Wales, the Samhain equivalent festival is Calen Gaith, in Cornwall it's Calen Guav, and in Brittany it's Calen Gom. Semantics aside, summer's end, winter's beginning, it meant the same thing to the ancient Celts who only observed the two seasons, winter and summer, the Britons celebrated their October 31st slash November 1st festivals much in the same manner as the Gales. Death was the central theme. Ceremonial fires were lit to guard against the coming darkness of winter. Tasty treats and adult beverages were consumed. We find traces of this same Celtic tradition in Portugal, Galicia, Asturias, Cantabria, Catalonia, and other regions of the Iberian Peninsula, which is especially interesting because according to Irish mythology, the Gaels, aka the Milesians, are said to have invaded Ireland by way of Spain. The Celtic. We find traces. The ubiquity of Samhain and its equivalents in Atlantic Europe no doubt caught the attention of the Catholic Church. So much so that in 835 CE, Pope Gregory III decided to reschedule the Christian holiday, All Saints Day, so that it coincided with Samhain. Up until that point, All Saints Day, known variously as All Hallows Day, Hollow Mass, Feast of All Saints, Feast of All Hallows, and Solemnity of All Saints, was held in May. First celebrated in 609 CE, it was originally intended to honor the Virgin Mary and Christian martyrs. But when Pope Gregory III changed the date to November 1st, he also expanded the holiday to include the commemoration of all saints. This was likely an attempt by the church to harness and redirect some of that thinking about dead people energy Sawin had already generated. More on that later. Now, it's easy to look back and say that Christianization was effective. After all, All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween, is now the dominant October 31st holiday in the Western world, not Samhain. But upon further reflection, Halloween has become so secularized as to have lost most of, if not all, of its Christian underpinnings. And why do we bob for apples on Halloween? Nothing says Halloween fun quite like plunging your face into a bucket of water in the hopes of getting an apple wedged between your teeth like you're some kind of prized pig preparing yourself for a roast. I mean, seriously, where the heck did this bizarre semi-aquatic autumnal custom come from? Go back a couple of centuries and you might have witnessed courtly lords and ladies bobbing for apples in an effort to foretell their romantic futures. In Britain, a common version of the game was to have each floating apple correspond to a potential mate. Young women would take turns aiming their chompers at the apple's name for the young men they fancy. Get the apple on the first try and the relationship was bound to blossom. Get it on the second try and sparks would fly at first but then the relationship would fizzle. Get it on the third try and the poor young lady might as well spit it up. The relationship just wasn't meant to be. In Ireland, a variation of apple bobbing called snap apple is the more common form of fruit-based merrymaking. Clearly, bobbing for apples and snap apple were once courtship rituals. Welcome back to Witchcraft Horror Stories, and I'm going to tell a horror story of a love spell gone wrong while I do a love spell. So when I was very young, I decided to do a love spell on somebody I shouldn't have done it on without any divination. And the love spell worked to a degree. The person became absolutely stalker-obsessed with me, and I realized they were not the person for me, so I broke up with them. He became so obsessed that it was literally actually terrifying. He slashed my tires on my car at one point so that I couldn't go on dates with anybody else. He would show up at my work and just sit in the parking lot, and my grandma wouldn't help me undo it. So it took a lot of work to figure out how to undo, and I actually had to petition our ancestors to... Welcome back to Witchcraft Horror. All right, that was from Coco.
Hi guys, so today I'm going to bring you guys a story about how I almost got kidnapped by witches. If you're Mexican, you do believe in a lot of this. If you're not, I'm so sorry, but if you want to stick around to the video, you can. Well, anyways, so let's start. I was born and I was literally like three days old. This is what my mom told me. And, you know, my grandma had two ladies over at her house and she came out of her house to greet them because they lived like my grandma's house was here and my mom's house was across the street. So we share um, backyards together. So basically, so basically my mom ended up coming out to greet them right and when she did the ladies looked at my mom and said you need to go back inside and my mom was like what and she said yeah tonight when you are you go to bed you're gonna hear a lot of weird things like no matter what don't come out that's what my my grandma's friends told her and my mom was just so confused well anyways my mom went to bed like i said and basically my mom said that she turned off all the lights and she's trying to put me to sleep and out of nowhere uh you could hear like somebody was walking across the um roof and she said that you could hear somebody like dragging like chains and you could hear like stomps and my mom was just like at that point i realized like something was going on and she said she's she got really scary but then she was like you know what i'm gonna start praying and she said they bothered her all night from 12 in the morning all the way to like five in the morning and she said once the sun came out they left basically what ended up happening is my mom later like two days later ended up seeing the two ladies that were at my grandma's house and she basically just was like hey how did you guys know that that was gonna happen to me like and the ladies basically said that when they got to my grandma's house that they were right next to her house there was a tree and that there was a bird that kept on like singing and singing and singing and it was not normal because it was a black bird that was really big and when my mom came out it would it just stop and you know i guess they were kind of like into brujeria or whatever and they know who to tell that but if you didn't know like they were like basically they were trying to take your daughter away and they were just waiting for you to come out so they could go in and just take her and basically if you don't know witches in mexico tend to take your kids so that they can just sacrifice them and basically like i don't know what they do with them but yeah that's the story guys all right that was from valentina did you know the witchcraft act of 1735 was last used in 1944 helen duncan was a woman who was accused of spying during world war ii because she somehow knew supposed secrets about the war she was persecuted under the act from the 18th century which made it illegal to pretend to use witchcraft to find out information helen actually claimed to be a medium or spiritualist and not a witch Government probably knew Helen wasn't really a witch. In fact, Winston Churchill apparently thought the whole thing was ridiculous, but they were scared about secrets leaking in spies. Helen was jailed for nine months, though the Witchcraft Act was repealed afterward. That was from Bladerade. I mean, that's modern times. I definitely was not expecting the tra traction online. I was kind of just like, hee hee, ha ha. And then everyone was like, wait, you should be upset about this, though. <laughs> Hello, my love, my doves. I hope this message finds you in good spirits and in good health. So we're going to have a little conversation on witch history because this still technically affects us a little bit today. This particular person is still alive in our lifetime. Yay! Her it says, on this day in 1975, Zuzana Budapest became the last person in the United States to be arrested and tried for witchcraft. She was arrested and convicted of the crime of reading tarot cards to an undercover officer in California. She may have lost the trial, but she won the issue. 
The statute against psychics was struck down nine years later through her efforts. She goes by Z Budapest, uh, her pen name. Um, she became the last person in the United States to be arrested and tried for witchcraft here in California. I definitely was not expecting the traction. Hey, really big, super important thing for pagan business owners in Pennsylvania. Guess who had the cops called on them in, you know, the year of their Lord, 2023, for practicing witchcraft and reading tarot in my shop, which is one of four in my small town. People with no time on their hands really want to come out and say I'm like scamming people when there are actual scammers on Instagram doing that. Are you serious? The best part is the person, uh, like they didn't even call the fucking cops. It was the police chief himself who saw an article written about what great things my store was doing for our downtown area, like cleaning up trash and building a community. But no, now I get to go deal with a law that has been on the books since the 18 fucking hundreds. Ah! Anyways, lawyered up, let's fucking go. I'm not doing this today. Not my business, not this Virgo. That was the Stitching Witch, and then I think this is a follow-up. And then everyone was like, wait, you should be upset about this, though. <laughs> it's really funny, like, I, <laughs> um, uh, on Monday, before all of this happened, I was, like, freaking out, because I was like, I am gonna have to live on ramen and peanut butter and jelly for the next month so I can afford rent, um, and since then, we um we made rent for the shop and like pay, like after paying out all our vendors and everything like we did that in less than 72 hours so like we're good you know what I mean I've had people from like New Zealand reaching out to me like this is an international news story apparently which is like kind of gross and crazy um <laughs> but ultimately like I have just I think been validated by my community and i'm just very grateful that people are are willing to put themselves out there in support of me because i'm just like a single person in my little shop with my deck of cards in pennsylvania like you know what i mean i'm nobody i just like I, and i'm just grateful that people are like wait no 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 that's like that's not cool that this is happening to you so um yeah <laughs> all right and that was that update was from the keystone newsroom all right, and for her doing witchcraft, I can't believe that's even a possibility in 2023, but it just shows you kind of the, that it's still going on. The stuff is not ancient past, it is modern times as well. All right, let's take a little break. Right, we're jumping over to baliyahoo.com where they have an article about the truth about the witch of Bali Yahoo. It begins Hi, I'm Lucy. Welcome to Bali Yahoo. This is where I write about my adventures as I search for the witch of Bali Yahoo. If you've been here before, you will already know that I suspect that a woman called Biddy is really a witch, and that I've been following her to find the truth. Last week, I followed Biddy into a very wild and rocky meadow, and then I watched as she climbed up some very strange steps. Steps that seemingly lead absolutely nowhere. 
When she got to the top of the steps, I was about to take a picture of her when she turned around, looked me in the eye, and said in a very loud voice, What in the name of the banshee from Baliyahu Bog are you following me for, young one? I don't mind admitting that I was scared, not because I had been caught following Biddy, and also because she mentioned the banshee of Baliyahu Bog. Nobody from Baliyahu, in fact, nobody in their right mind, would ever say the words Banshee of Baliyahu Bog out loud. Nobody. The Bog of Baliyahu is a very dark place, even in the daytime. And when the mist comes rolling down the hills, it's a very scary place, with very scary stories to match. You see, it is supposed to have a secret, a secret that's been buried in the darkness of Baliyahu Bog for a very long time. Rumor has it that the secret is about the Banshee. She's not an ordinary Banshee. They are scary enough. But the Banshee of Baliyahu Bog is very different from the ordinary Banshee. The Banshee of Baliyahu Bog is the most beautiful, the most powerful, and above all, the most scary of all Banshees in Ireland. Oh, and by the way, there's an awful lot of Banshees in Ireland because we have an awful lot of bogs. We have an awful lot of bogs because we have an awful lot of rain. Some say when it rains in Baliyahu, it's the Banshee crying. The Banshee of Baliyahu Bog is sad. Something happened long ago to make her that way. She is also very shy. She is shy that she doesn't like anyone talking about her or even mentioning her name. If she hears anyone mentioning her in any way at all, even just to say that she's a lovely Banshee, she will cast her eyes upward until the lovely clear white around the blue of her eyes turns blood red. Then she will stare at the sky until it turns the color of the darkest bog oak. And then, if she's really annoyed, she will turn the clouds so red it's as if the f sky is on fire. After that, she will rise from the bog on a swirling cloud of mist with her hands dripping with blood. She will set off to find whoever it was that was talking about her. If a banshee comes for you, it will be your blood that's going to be dripping from her hands. And that also means you're going to die. Sooner or later. Maybe sooner. Maybe later. But you will definitely die. And you will probably be screaming. So you can see why nobody mentions the banshee. Even my mother never mentions the banshee of Baliyahu Bog. Except in the slightest of whispers. Yet, here was Biddy, not only mentioning the banshee of Baliyahu Bog, but she was mentioning it in a loud voice, a very loud voice. So now that you know all of this, you will understand why I was so scared. I nearly turned and ran, but I couldn't run. You see, there was one thing stopping me. I couldn't move, not an inch, not even a half an inch. My feet were stuck to the stop. My feet were stuck to the top of the steps. It was like some invisible glue had stuck them firmly to the ground. I tried desperately to lift my feet one at a time, but it was no good. As soon as I managed to unstick one foot, the other one got even more stuck. I tried jumping in the air to set myself free, but it made it even worse. I got more desperate by the second, and all Biddy did was watch me, and it seemed to me that there was even a hint of a smile as she watched. As soon as I was exhausted, I had goose pimples everywhere, and my arms and legs were shaking. I had no choice but to stop trying to free myself. Biddy smiled and then spoke in a quiet voice this time. Stop it, Lucy. You can't get away. You followed me here for some reason. So now, here's your opportunity to tell me what you want. Please, Biddy. I'm sorry I followed you. 
Just let me go, please, I said. She laughed. Of course I'll let you go. What on earth do you think I would want with you? Just tell me why you've been following me and don't tell me any porkies. I know you've been following me for some time, so just tell me why and I'll let you go. I felt stupid. How could I tell her to her face that I thought she might be a witch? Even an ordinary woman would go mad if someone said they were like a witch. And there's no telling what an actual witch might do. I'm carrying out an investigation, I said. What investigation? she asked. I wasn't going to tell her, but her eyes looked straight into mine. It felt like she could see right through me, past the fields behind me, through the witchy woods, around the rivers, across the seas, straight through the mountains of County Clare, and back again. I was trying to find out if there were any witches in Baliahu. And what put that idea in your head? She asked. I overheard a, a man or a mad one saying it, I answered. A mad one? Sure, Baliahu's full of mad ones. Which mad one? Oh, never mind. I can guess which mad one told you I was a witch. Then she laughed. Not a mad witch's cackle, but a crinkly little laugh. Quite a nice laugh, really. Still, I kept my mouth shut. I knew enough about mad ones not to tell tales on them. The last thing I wanted to be was to be stuck in the middle of a raging feud between Maggie Minicats and Biddy, whether she was a witch or not. Don't worry, Lucy, you needn't say any more. Just tell me this much. Are you afraid of witches? I am. Why? In case they put me under a spell and turn me into a frog. A frog? Why on earth would I want to turn you into a frog? Have you ever done anything wrong? I had to think about that. I must admit, I don't always do my homework, and that when I should. Sometimes I tell my mother I've done it so I can carry on doing what I want. Sometimes I turn my bedroom light off and then get my torch out to read when I'm supposed to be asleep. I also played a few chicks, tricks on Jerry Mack, but then we all do that. You see, he is the laziest and easiest boy in Baliahu to mess with. All he wants to do is swing back and forth on his gate. He likes calling people names as well. One day he called me Lucy the Looper when I went past him. It was like the 50th time he called me that, and I had enough. So that night, I borrowed a screwdriver from my mom's toolbox and waited for Jerry's mom to call him in for dinner. As soon as she called him, he ran like a hare. I would have to run in, too. They were having sausage and mash. I could smell it from where I was hiding behind the bush. As soon as he went in, I unscrewed the gate. I knew what to do because I watched my mother fix our gate, so I just did the opposite. It was so funny when he climbed on his gate the next day and he fell flat on the ground with the gate on his back, and no matter how much he wriggled, he couldn't get up. I helped him up eventually, but only after he apologized several times. I suppose I'd done loads of wrong things like that, but none of the wrong things I'd done were all that terrible. Not really. But I was no saint either. I had gotten quite lost in my thoughts about the things I had done wrong, that I almost forgot about Biddy, but she hadn't gone away. She was right in front of me, waiting for me to answer her question. So, Lucy, have you ever done anything wrong? I nodded, but was about to tell her about my wrongdoings when she put her hand up and stopped me. That's good, she said. Very, very good. Well, I wasn't expecting that. Normally, when you tell adults that you've done something wrong, they tell you not to do it again. 
but all Biddy did was grin. Nothing too terrible about that, and the good thing is you were going to tell me the truth. I can see no need to turn you into a frog, can you? No, I gulped. Right then. So why don't you stop all this rubbish about witches and frogs and let me tell you what we witches really do. We? So she was admitting she was a witch? Yes, Lucy, I am. Wait a minute. I didn't say that out loud, I thought. She must have read my thoughts. I did. I don't only read your thoughts, I made sure you couldn't get away by gluing your feet to the ground with my magic steps. Why? Now Lucy, that's the important thing. I know you've been following me around, and I know all about your mission to find out the truth about the Witch of Baliahu. And do you know what? I've been impressed. Yes, really impressed. You see, people listen to gossip and spread more of it around, but you didn't. You're different. You decided to investigate, and you did it in a very professional way. You're no Egypt, Lucy. In fact, you're not a bit Egypty at all. Wow, I couldn't believe my ears. Biddy was praising me? I wish my mother would say things like that. She thinks I'm an Egypt. Biddy must have read my mind again because she said, She doesn't, Biddy. Your mother thinks the world of you, but she is a clever woman and she is clever enough to let you think for yourself. Your mother might say you're an Egypt now, but again, but believe me, all mothers call their kids Egypts now and then, especially in Baliyahu. But your mother knows you're not an Egypt, and so do I. So listen carefully, Lucy, because I've got going to tell you something very important. Something's going, something that is going to change your life. All right, we go over to nts.org, where they have some Scottish ghost stories, witches, murder, and folklore. Cool Ross. This peaceful 17th century village is a living open-air museum. Listen to the tales of the Colross witches who were imprisoned and tortured in the townhouse, of petty criminals branded for their life with an S-shaped courtroom key, S for sinner, and of miscreants dragged to the Mercat's Cross to have their ears nailed to the town stocks. Colross Palace was built by Sir, Sir George Bruce around 1600. Visit its remarkable stone-vaulted strong room, and you may interrupt Sir George recounting his money. Although he smiles and waves to children, he wards off adults who venture too close to his fortune. You may also encounter a young and elegantly dressed Mary Erskine, holding a bouquet of lavender as she admires the palace garden. Alright, that was the only story on that article that I saw had witches, so I will move on. Alright. This is from the podcast, it, it looks like, um, E-Spooky Tales, so be sure to check out that episode, um, possibly episode 39, The Tales of Brujas. I'm reading the blog here, where they've written kind of what they talk about in that episode, but I wanted to go into a specific story that they were talking about coming from Hidalgo, Mexico. Alright. Unlike the scary... Unlike the scary stories tell, not all brujera is evil, and it's fascinating that a reclaiming of brujera seems to be occurring in the Latin community. The scary bruja legends are still fun to read, but do keep in mind that Christianity changed the way brujeria is perceived in Latin America. Alright, here we go. Hidalgo, Mexico. It is said that in certain regions of the Mexican state of Hidalgo, 
It is prohibited to say the word bruja on Fridays, and many people still put salt on their rooftops, as well as place scissors in the shape of a cross below their bed. In the town of Huichapan, Hidalgo, many still tell stories and legends of shape-shifting brujas and of seeing the fireballs on the faraway hills. Newborns are especially protected here, as the brujas that shift into guajalotes, <laughs> turkeys, spend the night time looking for newborns to suck blood from. It is an old belief that witches' tongues turn into spider webs, and at night, the web reaches into the newborn baby's crib to suck their blood. Many would use iron scissors to cut spider webs before putting their baby down for the night, and then in the morning, these cut-up webs would said to have shifted back into human tongues. Ew. Women that were single spent a lot of time alone and had jobs like midwives, healers, curandera, were suspected to be bruja. Bruja are said to remove their legs in order to transform into that turkey, or to have the ability to become a flying fireball. If the bruja returns to her house and cannot find her legs, her death is inevitable. Aculuco, Mexico. Aculuco, Mexico is a municipality in the Atlacomulco region of the state of Mexico. Aculco is said to be a very cold place, as well as the place full of legends. One of these legends is called La Bruja, or The Witch. Many years ago, there was a beautiful young woman with long black hair and golden skin. All the young men loved her, but the elders all warned them to stay away from her for her family practiced black magic, and she was a bruja. Despite her beauty, no one was willing to marry her and grant her her biggest wish, to be a mother. The years went by and by, and she was still alone. Eventually, she was too old for her dream, and she grew resentful. She became full of hate and set on vengeance, and was said to have made a deal with the devil. Soon after this, a child was missing in Alcolco, then another, then a third. The townspeople immediately suspected the bruja, and they all marched to her house, pitchforks in hand. They were ready to burn her alive and decide to knock her door down. But at that moment, extreme coldness and fog surrounded them. Then a loud voice boomed from the giant tree next to her house. The voice said terrible things and then told them she was one they called bruja, as she took the children as revenge. The men in the crowd rushed the tree with an axe, but then the cries of children were heard. The bruja began laughing, then told them the soul of the children were trapped in the tree too. The mother of the children begged the man not to tear down the tree. To this day, the tree remains, and they said if you stab the tree with a knife, the tree will bleed, and the crying of children can be heard, along with the laughter of the bruja. This is a story from Reddit that was submitted by Fluffy Sam as a comment to a post. They were raised by their grandmother. She would tell them all sorts of stories, but one particular day they couldn't go to sleep and she told them a very scary story. And then she would retell the story all the time. It goes as follows. The story goes that my great-great-grandmother had been a stubborn Protestant. When she married my great-great-grandfather, and although she did not convert, 
or she did convert to Catholicism, she held on to the belief that baptism should be a choice. They had a son as their first child and were wildly happy for a time, but still my great-great-grandmother would not relent and the child went unbaptized. The first year of the child's life has passed and he began to walk. My parent, grandparents were so proud. One night, they put him to bed and they themselves turned in for a head start on what would be another sleep-deprived night, such as life of an infant. For whatever reason, they fell into a deep, restful sleep, but apparently my great-great-grandmother felt something was wrong in her sleep and sat bolt upright. My grandma tells me that her first instinct her mother had was to check the child, and that is what she did. The baby room was adjacent to theirs, and we were a rich family once, so multiple bedroom home was a status symbol in the town. She tried the door and found it to be locked from the inside. By that time, my great-great-grandfather had awoken, and almost immediately they heard the most inhuman cackle from the other side of the door. After some struggle, they managed to get the door open, and the child was gone. She told my great-grandmother that in este moment, senti como mi mundo entero se había acabado. Roughly translated, she said she felt like her world had ended. All that was left of my all that was left of my world be would be great great granduncle was an empty crib and the pain in the hearts of his parents. Fast forward around a hundred years. I'm born, the firstborn son of my generation, the eldest of all the grandchildren, like the child would have been. My grandmother forces my baptism as early as possible. The house we have been living at the time was adjacent to a notorious home in our city that was reportedly a hive for cult, occult activity. We were poor, so a house in the slums was all we could afford. One night, just after my first birthday, my mom or my mother awakes much the same way her ancestors did a century earlier to find a locked door to my room. The door again opens after some struggling, but I'm unharmed and the window is open, which had been closed, and a feeling of evil perverted the room, or so says my mother. Alright, we're over on TrueHorrorStoriesOfTexas.com where they have a ton of articles and blog posts about different spooky characters. But there's one that caught my eye. It's from July 15, 2018. It's called, There is a Little Witch in All of Us, and it comes from Far, Texas. Our next story comes to us from T in Far, Texas. She writes about a family legend that has stuck with them for decades and still may be impacting them today. Growing up with my grandmother in far Texas was filled with stories of lechuzas and duendes, little beings snatching bratty children. Uh, a story of my great aunt Kina came up when, that I can never forget and deserves some recognition. It all started with a little scandal of a relative. This relative's new lover went down to Mexico to find a witch to cast illness to the children that belonged to the first wife. All got sick except the youngest, Leandro. He had warts all over his face and in his eyes and a burning temperature. 
this little boy was going to die. Out of all my grandmother's sisters, Tia Kina, small 100-pound woman, found it in her to do something. She got the Bible, held the poor boy, and prayed for life. She started chanting a special prayer backwards, and if you know Spanish prayer, that's hard. Then a lechuza flew in and started attacking my aunt. They say it was a big brown owl with the face of a woman. So my aunt grabs the ugly owl as it's now trying to pry away from her as she has it in her grasps. She continues the special prayer to try to kill it. As she finished the chant, the little boy is getting scars all around his body, and the lechuza is cowering away. Feathers all around the room. She fought the creepy owl off with some straight love and devotion. I can't say much for the relative who caused all this, but I can say the little boy lived. After almost losing his eyesight, he got better quickly. Still, scars on his face as a 60-year-old man? My tia Kina died of breast cancer shortly thereafter, leaving little ones behind. It is said that whatever it was that the Lechuza was trying to kill the young boy with flew into her body and caused her cancer. She passed, but her story isn't forgotten. There's a little witch in all of us. One specific one that I wanted to cover because it kind of covers an old trope of witches flying around. So this one is from same site, August 12, 2017. Donna, Texas woman grows accustomed to witches flying overhead. I have lived in Donna, Texas since I was small. When I was around eight, even 10, I would see witches flying outside my house. It was not a creepy thing at all. I got so used to it because it was every full moon or every other day. Over the years, it became less of me seeing them flying until I was 14. There used to be a big tree in front of where I lived. It was huge and pretty and there was a house next to it, like every normal day around 4 a.m. because school buses used to pass that early back then. My neighbors would always be standing there before me until one in the morning. I heard everyone scream and running back home. They saw something flying out of the tree. They described it like a movie. For a while, no one would wait outside anymore. Another time, I was 16 when my mom asked me to go for the clothes outside and the lights went off and on. That's when I saw a witch flying on top of me. I was literally scared because she looked down at me. I just prayed to God. Until now, I still live with my parents. Many things used to happen before I moved here, when I was small. Now, whatever it is, it's back. That was from Maria. Alright, very cool story. So, I did want to point out kind of a Broadway play. You know, the one with the Wicked Witch. Um, or, it, let's say it's a spin on the Wicked Witch of the West. You know, the story of Oz and the Wizard of Oz and all the rest of that. So, I like the whole tropes nowadays of taking villains like Maleficent and Alphaba and things like that and kind of showing their perspective on things and making them kind of seem more human and justified, I guess. But uh, maybe that's just me getting old and identifying with villains, but I digress. Um, so, I really liked the Broadway play Wicked. Because it kind of talks about good versus evil. And the one that complies to the social norms, which is Glinda, she's the good witch, you know? 
And then when they go see the wizard, um, they're like best friends, the Alphaba and Glinda. And Alphaba is just very responsible and independent. And she realizes that the wizard is a fraud. And she realizes that he's just scamming all of these people. So she refuses to bend the knee. Well, Glinda does bend the knee. And then Alphaba is turned into this monster. Like, not literally, but, you know, everybody turns against her. And she's just trying to live her life and find love and help people. But it always backfires and everything. And so I think that has a lot of good symbolism in it. And everything because you know all of society was like you know glenda's the good one and then you know the whole thing is about like Elphaba is just trying to live her life and trying to find love you know and yeah i just thought that was really cool and i definitely recommend anybody go see wicked because it's pretty cool so i wanted to add this video that i found on facebook um, about the founder of witchcraft. Not witchcraft itself, but modern witchcraft, maybe? I don't know. Let's listen. Gardner, Gerald Gardner. Gerald Gardner is often called the father of modern witchcraft, and that's due to the fact that he founded Wicca. Although, technically, he learned it from a group of people and then went on to just write about it, so they gave him credit for it. But... Anyways, basically, back in 1939, he said that one night he encountered a group of women who claimed to be witches. They stripped him of his clothes and put him in the middle of a ceremonial circle. The circle was lined with naked women, and they showed him their ways. From there, he learned briefly about Wicca and thought, hey, this is great. Let's preserve this and make sure that everyone knows about it. In 1954, he actually created a book titled Witchcraft Today that teaches others how to embrace Wicca fully. He then went on and became obsessed with the occult. In fact, it's believed that a number of Wiccans and pagans were saved partly because of him. They could come out and be like, yeah, I'm a witch without fear of being hanged or burned alive. To this day, he's one of the most relevant witches in history, but also one of the more controversial ones. Is from the creator Supernatural Theory. I thought it was cool that, like, sometimes it is just oral tradition that passes these things on. And so it is kind of a, a cool thing whenever people preserve that or write that down. So anytime you uh, feel like somebody's sending something your way, a quick helpful little thing to visualize in your mind is I'm a mirror. So I even asked my therapist one time because I had heard of this practice and I said, yeah, I'm really trying to like, you know, this person doesn't like me, but I'm really trying to like, I'm a mirror, I'm a mirror, you know, it's just reflective, like, whatever you send my way bounces back to you, you know? And so whenever I feel that, I just say, I'm a mirror, I'm a mirror, I'm a mirror. <laughs> now, I know some people put mirrors backwards on their wall or something for the same effect, um, but still, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, she said it's just one more thing in my tool bag of coping mechanisms. <laughs> But I digress. Alright, we're over on jhmoncrief.com where they have an article, True, Scary True Stories, The Pendle Witches. 
This is from January 2017. All right. She's talking about her novel, The Pendle Curse. Uh, this is Catherine Cavendish. And she's explaining her novel, The Pendle Curse. In August 1612, 10 men and women were convicted in Lancaster, England, of crimes related to witchcraft and subsequently hanged on the Gallows Hill. They became known to the history as the Pendle Witches. The trial was faithfully and uniquely for the time recorded by Thomas Potts, a clerk of the court, and then published in his book, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the Court of Lancaster. One factor of the case has resonated down the years for reasons which could not have been foreseen at the time. Eighty years later, in 1692, in a town thousands of miles from wild, rugged Lancaster countryside, another trial took place in Salem, Massachusetts. Here, between June and September, 19 men and women were carted off to be hanged at a location known as Gallows Hill. But the name of the place of their execution wasn't the only thing the two sets of trials had in common. In both trials, the testimony of a child was crucial to the success of prosecution. The Lancaster or Lancashire witch trials broke new ground in allowing and conducting testimony from an underage minor. In Salem, they used Mr. Potts' handbook on how to do it. It is not certain how old Jeanette Device was when she testified against her mother, brother, and sister, as well as their friends and their bitter rivals. She is variously recorded as having been 9, 11, or 13, but by all accounts, she was under the age of 14. Until then, this had been seen as the youngest permissible age at which reliable testimony could be allowed in the court. So who was she and why did she do it? Jeanette Device was the youngest and most likely illegitimate child of the widowed Elizabeth Device and lived with her older brother and sister, James and Allison. Younger brother William and grandmother, Elizabeth Southerns, known locally as Dimdike or Demon Woman, the, woman, the women in her family were the local wise women of the area. Their knowledge of herbs and the ability to fashion cures for ailments of both animals and humans made them a meager income, which they supplemented with begging. But their bitter rivals were another family, Anne Whittle, known as Chaddix for her chattering teeth, and her daughter, Anne Redfern. Each family had their own set of clients and woe betide anyone if one was stolen. Whether these families had special powers or not, they certainly seem to have believed that they did. Under the witch-hating King James I, they laid themselves wide open to accusations of witchcraft, but none could be suspected. None could have suspected their chief accuser would come within their own ranks. When questioned by the judge as to Jeanette's age, ambitious local magistrate Roger Noel responded that she was, quote, old enough. At the trial, Jeanette could not be heard over the rowdy audience, nor could she be seen, as she was so small. A table was brought in, and she stood on it before pointing her finger as directed by Chief Prosecutor Roger Noel. When prompted, Jeanette said, My mother is a witch, and that I know to be true. I've seen her spirit in the likeness of a brown dog, which she calls Ball. The dog did ask what she would have him do, and she answered that she would have him help her to kill. She then went on to give evidence about witches' Sabbath allegedly held on Good Friday of 1612. 
At 12 noon, about 20 people came to our house. My mother told me they were all witches. Her mother screamed out that the child didn't know what she was saying and then rounded on Jeanette herself. The child demanded her mother be removed from the court. Then Jeanette continued with her testimony and condemned all her remaining family, with the exception of little William, to the gallows. Why would she do such a thing? We will never know for sure, of course. She may have been the only illegitimate child in the family, although she did have a younger brother, and something of an outcast. Maybe she was exacting revenge. We cannot discount the influence of Roger Noel, who may have persuaded her that this was the only way to save herself from a similar fate of that of her family. Whatever her motivation, Jeanette disappeared from history, only to reappear in 1633, when she herself stood accused of crimes relating to witchcraft. In a bitter twist of fate, she was accused at her trial, along with 16 others, by Edmund Robinson, a 10-year-old boy. The precedent she had unwittingly set came back to haunt her. Jeanette was found guilty and imprisoned in Lancaster Castle, where her family had been held. But times had changed and the verdict was overturned by the Privy Council sometime later. Edmund Robinson admitted he had lied, saying he had been influenced by accounts of the Pendle Witch Trials. Jeanette was free to leave prison, except for one overriding problem. Guilty or innocent, prisoners had to pay for their board, or must remain incarcerated until they could. For Jeanette, this would have been impossible, so she would have to stay. She was last heard of in 1636. Alright, I go over to Cosmopolitan. Why am I at Cosmopolitan in a spooky episode? Well, it's because they wrote a spooky article. It's called Nine Things You Never Knew About Real-Life American Witches. Witches do celebrate during Halloween season, but for them, it's a very different holiday. Alright, I have a feeling this is going to talk about Samhain. Witches are among us, and far more of them than you think. Today, when people talk about witches in this country, they are often talking about members of the pagan movement a group of perhaps as many as one million Americans whose practices draw from a combination of pre-Christian European religions, Western occult, and Masonic societies, and forms of witchcraft. More and more, people are identifying as pagan and or Wiccan in the United States. By the way, Wiccan is a modern spiritual practice with roots in pagan traditions. As the blog Wicca Living explains, Wicca is technically classified as a pagan religion, though not all Wiccans could identify as pagans, and plenty who identify as pagans are not Wiccans. According to Quartz, one Trinity College study found that 8,000 Americans identified as Wiccan in 1990, which increased to 342,000 in 2008. Yeah, I thought that 8,000 was a little low. Additionally, 140,000 identified as pagan in 2001, increasing to 340,000 in 2008. In a survey published in 2019, sociologist Helen Berger found that approximately 800,000 Americans identify as Wiccan, which is of America. I've spent five years immersed in the American pagan community first at arm's length as a journalist, then as someone who personally curious about the rituals I'd observed, and finally, for a couple of years, an active student and participant. The result is Witches of America, both a snapshot of present-day witchcraft across the United States 
and a memoir of my own searching and questioning. But wait, what is paganism exactly? As I write in my book, since the 1960s, the term paganism or neo-paganism has been used to refer to contemporary practices pieced together from the salvaged scraps of pre-Christian European religions, Western occult, and Masonic societies, and forms of witchcraft. Some pagans subscribed to new religious beliefs systems invented out of whole cloth, or some pagans subscribed to new religions, belief systems invented out of whole cloth. Some practice traditions that claim ancient roots but can be traced back only a few decades. Some found the goddess through second-wave feminism, eager to create a creatix at the center of the universe. What does it mean to be a witch? There are many strains of paganism, but most share some core beliefs. They are polytheistic, meaning include, including multiple gods and goddesses, and nature-worshipping, and they believe that male and female forces have equal sway in the universe, and that the divine can be found all around us. Some believe in reincarnation, or an afterlife realm called Summerland, but there is no heaven or hell. Some might honor specific gods and goddesses like Athena or Isis, while others may honor a non-specific god or goddess. There isn't sin, but there is an idea of karma. Good and bad things you do will come back around, one way or another. Although traditions vary, many Wiccans and Pagans follow something called the Wheel of the Year, an annual cycle of eight seasonal festivals called Sabbaths that take place on important astrological events like solstices and equinoxes. Can anyone be a witch? Yeah. Anyone who wants to be a witch can be a witch, either by joining a community or coven, or by beginning a solitary practice. Wicca does not have a formal institutionalized structure, but as Berger explains, Wicca puts more emphasis on ritual and direct spiritual experience than belief. Adherents refer to themselves as practitioners, not believers. How do you become a witch? Some strains of paganism have initiation rites or structures of authority in which new practitioners will be welcomed and trained by others, but some witches believe you can initiate yourself simply by deciding to be a witch. Here are some surprising facts about witches. Number one, witches are often invisible. Not literally, of course, but the women and men who consider themselves witches or pagans don't always announce themselves in goth gear, tattoos, and piercings. They don't wear pointy hats or carry magic wands. Many are just as likely to dress in utterly innocuous ways in the daily uniforms of, say, a single mother driving her kid to track practice, a grade school teacher, a tech entrepreneur, or a cashier at Trader Joe's. Morpheus, the pagan priestess who served as my personal entree into the witchcraft community in the Bay Area, was actually working for an environmental protection group when I first met her. She'd drive to work in a pickup, dressed in khakis and a hoodie, her hair in a long red braid. The local ranchers she consulted with had no idea that she regularly hosted rituals under the moonlight out on her property just a few miles away. Some witches choose to remain in the broom closet, as they call it, because they work for the government or with children, live in a conservative community, or are simply afraid of the word witchcraft still carries too much baggage. At the same time, since the 80s, pagans have gathered in outdoor festivals and indoor hotel conferences all around the country, sometimes in groups of a few thousand. And with the rise of the internet in the 90s, 
vast networks have also spread online, making it that much easier for someone craft-curious in an area without a visible pagan presence to connect with a mentor in a chat room. Number two, while Hollywood horror films have unfairly made witchcraft out to be the work of the devil, they've got plenty of details right. Pagans are not interested in worshiping the devil. Many would say the Satan of Christianity is a god they don't believe in. So that's a major strike against the Hollywood horror movie depiction of witchcraft. On the other hand, there is a certain amount of drama and flair to ritual magic that the movies have come close to getting right. Witches do gather in circles to perform rituals, sometimes outdoors, under the moon. They use wands and ritual daggers or atames to guide magical energy in the right direction. They chant, sometimes in ancient languages. Depending on the specific tradition, a person trained in, they might also practice magic while sky-clad or in the nude. This isn't an invitation to sex, but instead a way of letting go of the mundane material world and entering a heightened state that allows for more powerful magic. Even children's entertainment like Hocus Pocus sometimes gets a few details right. The 90s Disney classic actually has a decent decently accurate number three most witches follow a strict moral code returning to the sinister devil worship thing the horror movie assumption that anyone who labels themselves a witch is out to harm others is false and unfair this community follows an ethical standard that's similar to the concept of karma the threefold law warns that any action you take will come back at you three times over or for witches of the wiccan tradition that's the wiccan read and it harm none, do what thou wilt. Follow your own lead, as long as you don't cause harm to anyone else. Yes, some witches perform hexes, and a personal or coven rivalry might, in a rare situation, escalate into a witch war. But this kind of behavior is frowned upon. The goal, as with many religious practices, is to bring yourself closer to spiritual enlightenment and balance, which is thought much harder to achieve if you're busy creating chaos. Right? I'm just going to, for sake of brevity, read the titles of the nine things that this article is saying. Number four, witches often do practice in covens. Number five, many men also call themselves witches. Number six, the Salem witch trials had nothing to do with real life witchcraft. Number seven, many witches are polyamorous. I didn't know that. Number eight, witches do celebrate during Halloween. But for them, it's a very different holiday. Unlike many other religious groups, witches have no interest in converting you. <laughs> During Halloween, our annual time of Spider-Man costumes, candy binges, and slasher films, hundreds of thousands of Americans are observing the high holiday of Samhain, pronounced Sa-win. This spooky holiday originated as a Celtic harvest festival. History.com explains, after the harvest work was complete, celebrants joined with Druid priests to light a community fire using a wheel that would cause friction and spark flames. The wheel was considered a representation of the sun and used along with prayers. Cattle were sacrificed and the participants took a flame from the communal bonfire back to their home to relight the hearth. There was a spiritual side to this ancient festival. It wasn't just a party celebrating the harvest. As Mental Floss explains, Celtic priests built huge bonfires, practiced divination rituals, and conducted rites to keep ghouls at bay. 
But since they didn't keep written records, many of these practices remained shrouded in mystery. Pagans, this is the time of the year from late October into early November when they say that the veil, the boundary between the living and the dead, is the thinnest making it a special time to commune with lost loved ones or distant ancestors. All around the countries, witches hold particularly intense rituals, evoking people who have passed away and hoping to receive a message or help from the other side. Many will dance and drink and eat things the person they're remembering enjoyed, giving the dead the pleasure of living again through their own body. It's just for that one night each year. All right, very cool article. I do believe in, you know, as I've said in other episodes, I do see a lot of spiritual things with my eyes, <laughs> with my physical eyes. Um, I've even asked my therapist about the possibility of like being a little schizophrenic or having psychosis or something like that, or like a delusion. But she, she said, I don't have any of that. And uh, that... I might possibly look into the spiritual side of things, which I already knew. I've known for a long time that it's more spiritual, but since I was in therapy, I had to bring it up and ask. <laughs> Am I crazy? Let me know. <laughs> so I will say as a part of that, uh, whenever it's getting around this time, the veil is thinner. Now, I see people standing where people are not there you know, in my house, in my room, driving on the side of the road, you know. But as we approach Halloween this year, one thing I noted to my sister, who also is pretty sensitive like I am, is I'm seeing animals dart in front of my car when no animals are there. <laughs> and on top of that, in my room, as I turn around, I will see someone standing there, but then they're not there at all, you know. So it's like, Oh, my brain's playing tricks, you know? But I digress. I do think the veil is thinner at this time of the year. I really enjoy this holiday because it basically culminates all the spooky things that we've ever been taught and all of our folklore and celebrating it. In the olden times, it was said that it was when the ghouls and goblins would come out and that's why the kids would dress like ghouls and goblins, so they wouldn't be able to tell who is a human up for the taking. Alright, thanks for listening to today's episode on Of Witchy Tales Part 2. Um, I had fun listening to all the found on social media, the ones I found throughout the internet. You know, I just think there are so many good things uh, to things like, you know, witchcraft and different things. Um, I know some people practice the religion of Wicca. I think that's really fascinating. Um, and a lot of it is very, like, Earth-centric and, like, wanting to, you know, do good and, like, accomplish good, you know, manifesting our dreams, you know, putting intention. Uh, it's like, it's almost like you're manipulating your surroundings using your intention and will. It's kind of a cool concept. But that's just how I see it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I had fun making it. Um, other than that, make sure you join us on the Facebook page at PS Spooky Shiz or Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shits on Facebook. Um, 
it's a great way to connect with me and submit stories for future episodes. If you like this content, be sure to leave a comment on your Spotify or wherever it has it on what did you think of this episode. Be sure to leave me feedback. I'm always open to suggestions for new topics, so feel free to send those my way. Stay spooky, my friends. P.S. Have a safe Halloween and a blessed Samhain. This is Chappie. Stay spooky, my friends.